Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 24th day of February, 2008. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind all of my listeners that all of the documentation backing up each and every statement in today's episode can be garnered from my website, www.corbettreport.com. There you'll be able to find not only the documentation list for today's episode, but also recent additions to the website, including articles, interviews, and videos. I'd also like to remind my listeners that keeping track of all of the updates to the website is now easier than ever. Simply click on the banner on the side of the homepage and you'll be able to visit the Corbett Report's new blog on the InfoWars network. By going to the blog, you'll be able to leave comments on any interviews, articles, videos, or podcast episodes you found particularly interesting. And there you'll also be able to read responses from other users. Without further ado, it's time for the real news. Our first story comes from the San Francisco Chronicle, February 4th, 2008. Rule by fear or rule by law? Since 9-11, and seemingly without the notice of most Americans, the federal government has assumed the authority to institute martial law, arrest a wide swath of dissidents, citizens and non-citizens alike, and detain people without legal or constitutional recourse in the event of an emergency influx of immigrants in the U.S., or to support the rapid development of new programs. Beginning in 1999, the government has entered into a series of single-bid contracts with Halliburton subsidiary Kellogg, Brown & Root, KBR, to build detention camps at undisclosed locations within the United States. The government has also contracted with several companies to build thousands of rail cars, some reportedly equipped with shackles ostensibly to transport detainees. According to diplomat and author Peter Dale Scott, The KBR contract is part of a homeland security plan titled Endgame, which sets as its goal the removal of all removable aliens and potential terrorists. Today's second story comes from CorbettReport.com, February 21st, 2008, headline, BC introduces carbon tax, Canada to be a testing ground for global tax. The government of British Columbia revealed a new budget yesterday that incorporates a tax on all carbon-based fuels of $10 per ton of greenhouse gas generated. This applies to everything from the gasoline in cars to the natural gas used to heat homes. The tax is scheduled to take effect July 1st, and it is estimated that this will add 2.4 cents to every liter of gasoline. That figure will rise as the tax triples to $30 per ton in 2012. As a CBC article on the subject points out, reaction has been decidedly negative, with critics arguing that the large industrial polluters will merely pass the tax burden onto their customers through higher prices. As NDP finance critic Bruce Ralston notes, big industrial polluters are the real winners with this unfair tax, as they get to pass the costs on to Canadians who are already struggling to meet soaring gas and heating prices. What this argument misses, though, is that financial hardship is precisely the purpose of this tax. The higher price for filling up at the pump will make consumers think twice about taking a long-distance drive or cranking up the thermostat during a cold snap. Of course, this will also mean higher shipping costs, which will affect the price of all goods, including food. 
But that, some argue, is what it will take to save Mother Earth. Our final story is from Infowars.com, February 23, 2008. U.S. and Canada pen bilateral military plan under NAU auspices. On February 14th at the U.S. Army North Headquarters, Fort Sam Houston, Texas, U.S. Air Force General Gene Renart, Commander of North American Aerospace Defense Command and U.S. Northern Command, and Canadian Air Force Lieutenant General Mark Dumais, Commander of Canada Command, signed a civil assistance plan that allows the military from one nation to support the armed forces of the other nation during a civil emergency, according to the U.S. NORTHCOM website. Billed as a bilateral military plan to align U.S. and Canadian national military plans to respond quickly to requests for military support of civil authorities, the plan represents nothing short of emerging of national military infrastructures under the aegis of the North American Union. Welcome to episode 34 of the Corbett Report, entitled The Scientific Dictatorship. Now, if that title sounds a bit like science fiction to you, well, that's probably because it is. Or at least that's what the man who coined the term is commonly associated with. The term comes from the author of Brave New World, a noted science fiction classic which portrays a dystopian vision of the future in which humans are no longer born through natural processes, but cloned and hatched from incubators into a world where their role in society is predetermined by world controllers who have stratified society into several distinct layers, from the alphas who are almost like regular functioning free human beings down to the epsilons who are almost ape-like unintelligent creatures who are bred for nothing more than grunt manual labor. But I get ahead of myself. Aldous Huxley may have coined the term scientific dictatorship, or at least popularized its usage, but in fact the progenitors of this idea includes H.G. Wells, another noted science fiction author, and in fact the mentor of Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian, who will figure later in today's episode. Let's start with our exploration of the idea of the scientific dictatorship and what this entails by taking a listen to a movie from 1936, which was based on an H.G. Wells screenplay from a book which he wrote in the early 1930s entitled The Shape of Things to Come. Let's listen to a clip of this movie, and to get an idea of what the movie is about, I think this plot synopsis from the True Stories video blog which hosts the video suffices. Things to Come, screenplay written by H.G. Wells, which is a propaganda film made prior to World War II, this movie shows a utopian vision after an apocalyptic war where the saviors of mankind come dressed as Nazi stormtroopers in stealth bombers, dropping peace gas, and taking over the world from sovereign nations to bring a Freemasonry of science. Well, it sounds like an interesting movie indeed. Let's listen to a scene in which that Nazi stormtrooper, in his stealth bomber, descends upon one of this post-apocalyptic war societies. He's talking to some of the saner, more rational individuals in the society, and later in the clip you'll hear him moved to talk to the ruler of this tribal-like society which has survived this apocalyptic war. 
and there they'll discuss the idea of free sovereign nations. Let's listen. So that's the sort of man your boss is. Not an unusual type. Everywhere we find these little semi-military upstarts robbing and fighting. That's what endless warfare has led to. Brigandage. What else could happen? But we, who are all that are left of the old engineers and mechanics, have pledged ourselves to salvage the world. We have the airways, all that's left of them. We have the seas. And we have ideas in common. The brotherhood of efficiency. The Freemasonry of science. We're the last trustees of civilization when everything else has failed. I've been waiting for this. I'm yours to command. Not mine. Not mine. No more bosses. Civilization's to command. Tell him he'll have to come. He won't come on foot. Well, we'll have to carry him. I don't know what'll happen to me, sir. If you don't come. Well, what do you want to see me about? Who are you? Do you know this country's at war? At war? Still at it, then. Eh? We must clean that up. What do you mean, we must clean that up? All war. Who are you, I said? The law. Law and sanity. I am the law here. I said law and sanity. Where do you come from? Who are you? Wings over the world. Well, you know you can't come into a country like this in this fashion. I'm here. Do you mind if I sit down? And now, for the fourth time, who are you? I tell you, wings over the world. That's nothing. What government do you under? Common sense. I belong to world communications. We just run ourselves. Yeah. You'll run into trouble if you try and land here in wartime. What's the game? Order and trade. Trade, eh? Can you do anything in munitions? Not our line of business. Fuel, spare parts, we've got planes, we've got planes. I've got boys that have trained a bit on the ground. We've no fuel, it hampers us. We might do a deal. We might. I know where I can get some fuel. I've got my plans later, but if you can manage a temporary accommodation, we'd do business. World communications helps no one to make war. End war, end war. I want to make victorious peace. I seem to have heard that phrase before, when I was a young man. But it made no end of war. Now, look here, Mr. Aviator. Let's see how we stand. Come down to actuality. The way you swagger, you don't seem to realize you're under arrest. You and your machine. You'll find other planes looking for me if I happen to be delayed. We'll deal with them later. Now, you can start a trading agency here if you like. I have no objection. The first thing we shall want is to get our planes in the air again. Right. A laudable ambition. But our new order has an objection to private aeroplanes. The impudence. I'm not talking about private aeroplanes. Our aeroplanes are public aeroplanes. This is an independent, sovereign state at war. I know nothing about any old order. I'm the chief here, and I'm not taking any orders, old or new, from you. I suppose I've walked into trouble. Yeah, you can take that as right. Where have you come from? I flew from my headquarters at Bazra this morning. We have some hundreds of new type planes and we're building more, fast. The factories are working again. We're gradually restoring order and trade in the whole Mediterranean area. We're scouting this region now to see how things are. You found out. This is an independent, sovereign state. Yes, we must talk about that. We don't discuss it. We don't approve of independent, sovereign states. You don't approve? We mean to stop them. That's war. If you will. 
So here we have H.G. Wells's idea of a perfect society of the future, in which Nazi stormtrooper-like individuals come flying in stealth bomber-type vehicles to try to control post-apocalyptic societies by threatening to gas them if they won't use their technology for peaceful purposes. Here we have a shadowy organization known only as Wings Over the World, devoted to what its progenitor and propagator calls a Freemasonry of science, trying to eliminate the disease of sovereign nations from the world in order to bring people together under the flag of a federation of scientific brethren. Well, that's an interesting piece of fiction, except that Wells did not entirely intend it to be fiction. The fact that H.G. Wells' work cannot be dismissed as merely science fiction fantasy is borne out by the fact that he wrote many non-fiction works, which he is no longer known for today, but which, in his time, made him one of the leading lights as a social commentator in the early part of the 20th century. Indeed, many of his non-fiction works, such as The New World Order or The Open Conspiracy, bear more than a passing resemblance to that nightmare vision of his ideal future that we just saw in The Shape of Things to Come. An idea of that can be garnered from this article by Daniel Taylor of oldthinkernews.com. And again, regular listeners to The Corbett Report might remember our interview with Daniel Taylor, and if you missed that, you can catch it by going back to our homepage, corbettreport.com. This article is entitled, H.G. Wells, Subdue Yourselves to the Federation of the World or Else, and it contains some quotes from one of H.G. Wells' most startling nonfiction works, entitled The Open Conspiracy. I recommend that all my listeners read this book, The Open Conspiracy, which contains some rather startling ideas about eugenics, including the scientific management of the world, which is aimed at directed breeding, among other shall we say, controversial topics. But I'd like to quote from this article by Daniel Taylor. Towards the end of the article, he writes, quote, A concise and bluntly stated summary of Wells' idea of a federation of the world can be found in the introduction that he wrote for prominent eugenicist Margaret Sanger in her book, Pivot of Civilization, written in 1922. Wells speaks with an authoritarian and elitist voice, condemning the world for misusing the gifts that the elite have so kindly presented to mankind. He writes these chilling words. The new civilization is saying to the old now, we cannot go on making power for you to spend upon international conflict. You must stop waving flags and bandying insults. You must organize the peace of the world. You must subdue yourselves to the federation of all mankind. And we cannot go on giving you health, freedom, enlargement, limitless wealth, if all our gifts to you are to be swamped by an indiscriminate torrent of progeny. We want fewer and better children who can be reared up to their full possibilities in unencumbered homes, and we cannot make the social life and the world peace we are determined to make with the ill-bred, ill-trained swarms of inferior citizens that you inflict upon us. With this one paragraph, Wells succeeds in presenting the full intent of population control, total domination. End quote. What Daniel Taylor points out there quite effectively by selecting that quotation from H.G. Wells points to something that H.L. Mencken articulated best in his maxim, the urge to save humanity often obscures the urge to control humanity. 
And it's in that vein that we move on to some of H.G. Wells's other nonfiction works, including A Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was prepared under the chairmanship of Lord Sankey of Britain and drafted in 1940 by H.G. Wells. This is an important document because it was later adopted in large part by the United Nations in their Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms. Some of the wonderful ideas that H.G. Wells presents for his world government in this Declaration of the Rights of Man is that the world government would have the right to take away children from their parents should the world government deem those parents unfit to rear their children for any reason. Another wonderful idea promulgated by Wells is that everyone has a duty to the community and the world government can enforce a quota of service to the community by every man, woman, and child. Again, this is the basis for the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms, and thus the basis of the UN as we know it today. This is where it starts to connect in with the Huxley family, who, of course, was quite intimately connected with the United Nations. And we will come more to Julian Huxley and UNESCO later on. But let's stop for a moment and try to address the concerns of those who still can't get over the fact that these science fiction writers are being taken seriously by this Corbett Report podcast. I think the key for understanding this so-called science fiction is the paradigm of predictive programming. And an understanding of what predictive programming is can be garnered from an excellent article by Philip Collins entitled The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. I recommend my readers read that article in its entirety, but I'll quote from a section of the article which talks about predictive programming. Quote, Science fiction is a means of conditioning the masses to accept future visions that the elite wish to tangibly enact. This process of gradual and subtle inculcation is dubbed predictive programming. Researcher Michael Hoffman elaborates, Predictive programming works by means of the propagation of the illusion of an infallibly accurate vision of how the world is going to look in the future. Memes are instilled through the circulation of mass-appeal documents under the guise of science fiction literature. Once subsumed on a cognitive level, these memes become self-fulfilling prophecies, embraced by the masses and outwardly approximated through the efforts of the elite. If the concept of predictive programming seems fantastic, consider the case of H.G. Wells. Wells was mentored by T.H. Huxley, grandfather of Aldous. In turn, Wells would tutor Aldous and his brother Julian. All of these men were members of the Freemasonic Lodge. Wells would author several mass-appeal tracts disguised as science fiction novels. Most notable of these novels was The Shape of Things to Come. End quote. It's in this context, then, that we can understand the use of the term the scientific dictatorship, coming as it does from the mouth of Aldous Huxley, who we usually associate at, with science fiction writing. In fact, of course, Aldous Huxley was part of that famed Huxley family, which we discussed in our earlier podcast episode about the eugenics movement. And the Huxley family being, for generations, part of the vital heart of that eugenics movement, makes Aldous Huxley's idea of the scientific dictatorship all the more chilling. Let's listen to a speech in which he uses the term scientific dictatorship and elaborates a little bit about what that is. This comes from a speech which he gave at Berkeley in the United States in 1962. And in this clip, he reveals that Brave New World, 
although ostensibly a piece of fiction, is very much based on things that he believed could happen in the future, and despite some reserved protestations, things that perhaps he even wanted to see happen. Let's take a listen to that clip from his speech at Berkeley in 1962. Well, now, in regard to this problem of, uh, of the ultimate revolution, uh, this has been very well summed up by the moderator. Uh, in the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing uh, the environment in order to change the individual. I mean, there's been the uh, political revolution, the economic revolution. Uh, in the time of the Reformation, uh, the religious revolution, uh, all these uh, aimed, as I say, not directly at the human being, but at his surroundings, so that by modifying the surroundings, you did achieve, uh, in, at one remove, a, an effect upon the human being. Today, uh, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on the mind body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, some kind of direct action on human mind bodies has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, but this has generally been uh, of a violent nature. The techniques of terrorism have been known from time immemorial, and uh, people have employed them with more or less uh, ingenuity, sometimes with uh, the utmost crudity, sometimes with a a good deal of skill acquired by a process of trial and error, finding out what the best ways of using torture, imprisonment, constraints of various kinds. But as I think it was Metternich said many years ago, you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That if you are going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. It's exceedingly difficult to see uh, how pure terrorism can function indefinitely. It can function for a fairly long time, but I think uh, sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of, of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Well, it seems to me that the the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, th this is the seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. And uh, this, is a, this is a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago a, a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the devices at that time available and some of the devices which uh, uh, I imagined to be possible, uh, making use of them in order to, first of all, to standardize the population, to iron out 
uh, inconvenient human dis uh, um, differences uh, to create, uh, so to say, mass-produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. And uh, since then, I have uh, con continued to be extremely interested uh, in this problem, and I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, that a, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already, and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution, this, this method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which, by any decent standard, they ought not to enjoy. Uh, this, I mean, the enjoyment of, uh, of servitude. Well, uh, this, um, this process, as I say, has uh, gone on for over, over the years, and um, I become more and more interested in what is happening. And here I would like uh, briefly to, uh, to compare what, the parable of Brave New World with uh, another parable which was put forth more recently uh, in uh, George Orwell's book, 1984. Uh, Orwell wrote his book between, I think, between 45 and 48 uh, at the time when the Stalinist uh, terror regime was still in full swing, and just after the uh, collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime. And his book, uh, which I admire greatly, it's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity, uh, shows, uh, is so to say, a projection into the future of the immediate past, of what for him was the immediate past, and the immediate present. It was a projection into the future of a society uh, uh, where control was exercised wholly by terrorism and uh, the violent uh, attacks upon the mind-body of individuals. Whereas uh, my own uh, book, which was written in, in 1932, when there was only a, a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini uh, in existence, was not overshadowed by the idea of terrorism, and uh, I was therefore free in a way which Orwell was not free uh, to think about these other methods uh, of control, the, these um, non-violent methods. And my, I'm inclined to think that... Uh, the scientific dictatorships of the future, and I think there are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world, will be probably a good deal nearer to the brave new world pattern uh, than to the uh, 1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the scientific dictators, but simply because the brave new world pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. Oh, I must say, I'm so chuffed with myself. I believe my vision of the scientific dictatorships of the future much outstrip that little sapling Orwell's.
Yes, you can practically hear Aldous Huxley salivating over this scientific dictatorship in which humans are engineered to be malleable cattle. Oh, of course, it's most detestable that people will be made to enjoy their servitude. Well, let's listen to a key phrase from that clip, and you tell me if you can spot exactly why I think he takes such relish in the idea of this scientific dictatorship blueprint. Well, it seems to me that the, the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. I think the more perceptive of my listeners will have noticed the use of his first-person plural in that statement, followed by the blithe admission of a ruling oligarchy, to understand which side of the debate Aldous Huxley falls on. Indeed, it's hard not to hear the evident glee in his voice as he talks about the construction of a scientific caste system, remarkably similar to that promulgated in his work Brave New World, but that Huxley actually advocated the use of the, such a system to control the population is made a little bit more explicit in this interview which he gave to television in the 1960s. Let's listen to a clip of an interview in which he explains why it's so necessary for the scientific dictators to control the population. Granting <clears throat> the importance of the dimensions you described, and I, I support them wholeheartedly, are you satisfied with the levels at which they're appearing today? No. I mean, we obviously have to do much more than we are doing, and we have to do it awfully quick because, uh, after all, we're faced by a great number of problems which are absolutely unique in history. I mean, the, nothing like the explosive population increase has ever happened before, and nothing like the explosive... Uh, uh, technological advance has ever happened before, nothing like the explosive advance in, in knowledge has happened before. We are, we are living in a world of sort of what may be called chronic revolution, chronic upheaval, and uh, unless we uh, break out of the culture which uh, imprisons us within a world of nationalism and militarism, given the hydrogen bomb, we're obviously in imminent danger and and also given uh, this uh, kind of culture which causes us to spend an enormous proportion of our resources on the armament race we are not going to be able to solve the ecological problem of man upon the earth we are not going to be able to solve the problem of a species which is increasing at the rate of 50 millions per annum on a limited environment i mean this is going to require all our goodwill and all our intelligence and all our knowledge and if we spend a great deal of our energies on something else, we're not going to be able to solve the problem. Moreover, I think that if we look at this problem, we may get away from the perfectly insoluble problems of power politics onto the soluble, possibly soluble problems of ecology. I mean, I think that it's high time that we started thinking not merely in terms of politics and ideology, but in terms of biology and the relationship of man to his environment. And 
Only in this way, by shifting the attention from what cannot be solved, which is the clash of power, uh, but which we are what perhaps can be solved, which is the future of humanity upon this planet, uh, shall we be able to escape from this frightful impasse uh, in regard to power politics which we face at this moment? And so we have another one of these eugenicists trotting out the hoary old Malthusian fantasies of overpopulation of the earth being used to justify controlling the population, quite literally, both in the sense of a directed breeding program designed to eliminate the lower classes, but also to control the population's thoughts, minds, actions, control them in every way, in fact. This is important, and it goes straight to the heart of the matter, the idea of directed breeding, of this scientific caste system, which Aldous Huxley referred to in his Berkeley speech about the scientific dictatorship. Although, of course, in the science fiction tales, the idea of this scientific caste system is always presented as something of a horror or something to be avoided. It's part of the power of the predictive programming system that even presenting an idea in a negative form will still enable the meme to be injected into the public consciousness, to become part of that self-fulfilling prophecy. Once the idea is unleashed, there will be those who work towards it, regardless of the injunctions of the authors against it, however heartfelt or dishonest those injunctions may be. And to get an idea of the power of this predictive programming meme... Let's take a look at some of the ways in which the proponents of this scientific dictatorship have inserted it into their science fiction works. Of course, we have Aldous Huxley's mentor, H.G. Wells, and I believe he used the idea of the scientific caste system in his book, The Time Machine. Now, how did that go again? Is this the human race of the future, or is this... The Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world. And the Eloi, the tranquil sunshine people, who the Morlocks dominate and maintain like cattle, luring them below with the hypnotic wail of the sirens to feed upon them in cannibalistic horror. Oh yeah, that's right. And then, of course, Aldous Huxley inserted it into Brave New World in the form of the Alpha to Epsilon rating system for humans in the Brave New World under the dictatorship of the world dictators. And wouldn't you know it, this meme is picked up by respectable philosophers like Bertrand Russell. That's right, the anti-war pacifist mathematician hero of the liberal left is in fact a eugenicist who strongly advocated eugenics and directed breeding in his works. A small sample of that comes from a work that he wrote entitled Eugenics and Dysgenics, The Scientific Breeding of Humans, in which he writes, quote, Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy, because the government will tell them that they are so. Sires will be chosen for various qualities, some for muscles, others for brains. All will have to be healthy, and unless they are to be the fathers of oligarchs, they will have to be of a submissive and docile disposition. Children will, as in Plato's Republic, be taken from their mothers and reared by professional nurses. 
Gradually, by selective breeding, the congenital differences between rulers and ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebs would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. End quote. It might be shocking for some of my listeners to hear Bertrand Russell espousing such philosophy, but there you go, there it is. You can look up the quotes yourself and make your own decisions. You'll notice there that Russell touches on pretty much everything that we've covered so far, from H.G. Wells's ideal of the world government confiscating children from their parents, to Aldous Huxley's vision of the scientific dictatorship, which involves directing the breeding of the races so that there becomes a lower race and a higher race of human beings. This, of course, is the ideals of eugenics, which, of course, has long been derided as a Nazi master race philosophy, but is, in fact, propounded by noted scientific, philosophical, and social writers and thinkers of the previous century and into today in different forms. But as a proof of the Huxley family involvement in eugenics, Again, I suggest you go back and listen to the Corbett Report's earlier podcast about eugenics and the Huxley's intimate involvement with it. But for another example, let's turn to a document entitled UNESCO, Its Purpose and Philosophy, which was part of the founding documents of UNESCO, founded, of course, by Julian Huxley. And this is an incredibly important passage from that document by Julian Huxley. Quote, Still another and quite different type of borderline subject is that of eugenics. It has been on the borderline between the scientific and the unscientific, constantly in danger of becoming a pseudoscience based on preconceived political ideas or on assumptions of racial or class superiority and inferiority. It is, however, essential that eugenics should be brought entirely within the borders of science, for, as already indicated, in the not very remote future, the problem of improving the average quality of human beings is likely to become urgent, and this can only be accomplished by applying the findings of a truly scientific eugenics. End quote. Again, that comes directly from the founding charter documents of UNESCO. And please keep in mind that Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous Huxley, was also the co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund, along with ex-Nazi SS officer Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. Now, for those who continue to believe that eugenics was just a regrettable mistake on the behalf of the leading thinkers of the 20th century, and that it has been long since abandoned, let's take a look at how it has in fact gone underground in a different type of movement, which today is gaining ground through the promotion of various individuals and groups like, surprise, surprise, UNESCO. That comes from this article, entitled, Foundation for the Future, A Planetary Symbiotic Civilization. Again, this comes from Old Thinker News, February 22, 2008. And it reads in part, The Foundation for the Future's Humanity in the Biosphere, the Next Thousand Years Conference, which teamed up with the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, focused on environmental issues like global warming, as well as population. The Foundation for the Future bills itself as an organization dedicated to discussion without preconceived ideas or opinions on what shape the future should take. However, many of the ideas and opinions expressed by its contributors reflect current agendas of globalist organizations which are having a very real impact on the shape of the globe. One particular contributor, Eric J. Chason, spoke at the Humanity in the Biosphere Conference in Paris, France in September 2006, 
Chason has been involved in the scientific community for many years, including contributions to the Hubble Space Telescope. During the 2006 conference, Chason elaborated on the need for a planetary civilization, the elimination of cherished concepts like national sovereignty, and an environmentally efficient symbiosis with networked machines in emerging of mankind and technology. Chason states, Humanity, as we now know it, will not likely exist on Earth in 1,000 years. Either humanity will not exist at all, owing to its inability to master each of the three E's, or our descendants, at least those sentient beings that remain on Earth, not only will have accepted a symbiotic relationship with Earth's biosphere, but also will have created a symbiosis with networked machines. The result may well be an intelligent, carbon-silicon cyborg that is indeed able to welcome evolution broadly considered, to use energy efficiently and wisely, and to enjoy a sense of ethical well-being. Chason concludes by praising Stephen Rockefeller's Earth Charter as a guide for the world, and ends with the statement that if the world doesn't adopt the globalist planner's vision for the world, civilization as we know it will end. End quote. Are you starting to recognize a pattern? It seems that these globalist futurists are pushing an idea of the future in which world government will be the only thing to save us from the utter destruction of civilization itself. And the only way in which they will be able to save us is by controlling the population completely down to the level of our biology to actually render us physiologically and neurologically incapable of revolting against their plans, to fit us into a scientifically created caste system in which everyone is assigned a specific role and no dissent is tolerated. Make no mistake about it, the transhumanist agenda to replace humanity with cyborg creatures is not about giving us nifty new ways to access the internet through the new brain chips that are implanted in our head or being able to listen to mp3s in our ear canal on command. It's about control. It's about the ability to implement eugenicist ideals of total control over the physiology of humanity. Again, transhumanism and how it relates to the eugenics agenda is one of those subjects which is too large to be covered here, but hopefully it will be covered in a future episode of the Corbett Report. In closing, I'd like to say you've heard a lot about the different scientific ideas of H.G. Wells, the Huxleys, Bertrand Russell, and others who argued that it was inevitable that a world government would save us from the end of civilization by attempting to control the evolution of humanity. But the information I've been able to present in today's program is just a fraction of what's available out there. I suggest that you do your own research into the scientific dictatorship using some of the articles and the websites that I've mentioned in today's episode as the basis for your research. And please let us know about your own research into the subject by going to the Corbett Report's blog on the InfoWars network and leaving some comments in the comment section. That's it for today's episode of The Corbett Report. Thank you for joining me. Join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.
have to put the world in order. It will be a long and complicated struggle, but we have the unity of a common order and a common knowledge. This is how I conceive our plan of operations. First, the roundup of brigands, that last dismal vestige of ancient predatory soldiery, the last would-be conquerors. Then settle, organize, advance, this zone, then that, and at last, wings over the world, and the new world begins.